0: Life Audio. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the How to stay the Bible podcast. I am your host, Nicole Eunice, and we have something a little bit different for you today. So we are in the holiday season. We're getting ready to round down the year. So we're going to be sharing a few different things with you. You guys have joined us from all around the world. Our community has grown so much. It's been so enjoyable, and I'm super grateful for your reviews, for passing on episodes to each other. So we decided we're going to post my sermons here um, as much as we can as well. So you're going to hear in just a moment a sermon I preached this month at Hill City Church here in Richmond, Virginia. It's about the power of invitation and the virtue of hospitality that we receive through Jesus. So I hope that you guys enjoy that. And hey, if you want to stay connected, one of the best ways that you can do that is by joining my email newsletter. It's totally free. And I just occasionally am going to send you devotionals, updates about places that I will be preaching or speaking, as well as my new book that comes out in March. So if you want to jump on that email newsletter, I would love to have you. You can find that at NicoleUnis.com slash real talk. And that little link for you is in the bottom in the show notes too. So If you want to navigate on over to my website, I would love for you to join that newsletter and I will see you there. I'll be posting a few Christmas reflections over the next few weeks. So I hope we can connect there and I hope that you enjoy this sermon today on coming to the table. Message and data rates may apply and available to U.S. addresses only.
1: Hello folks, my name is Derek Greer and I'm reaching out to fellow pastors and church leaders just like you to join me and other Christian leaders and organizations throughout the nation as we come together on June 8th and 9th for National Unity Weekend. Together we will show the love of Jesus as we serve our communities on Saturday, June 8th and then preach from a shared text on Sunday, June 9th. To register, go to unityweekend.com That's unityweekend.com to join us as we unite the church and unite the nation.
0: So good to be together in the house of the Lord. My name is Nicole. I'm part of the team here at Hill City, and I didn't reset my notes. So just a moment, please. There we go. All right. So glad to be here with you guys. Um, We're excited for this morning, excited about the series that we're in. And in case you didn't know it you now have 13 and a half days left to shop for Christmas. (laughs) So I bring that to our attention because I'm hearing this, like we're hearing this worship song and I'm like, oh gosh, God, you're so good. You're so generous. You're so kind. And then two hours from now, we'll be back like in our humanity, just like trying to live out this life, trying to live in these bodies that God has given us in these expectations that we have. And man, is there a time where there's more expectation than Christmas? Like when you just visualize sort of like what it looks like to have that perfect Christmas. And I want you to think about around the table what it would look like. And, and, and this brings all kinds of thoughts right up for us. One of those thoughts might be, man, I wish that I had a family like that, that I wish I had experienced a Christmas like that. Or you might be thinking, "Ooh, I'm the one who's supposed to be in charge of making that happen. And it never Quite goes the way that I want, or maybe you're still like the very small minority of us who are like, No, I actually make a beautiful and festive Christmas. It's magical, and the rest of us would like to come to your house for Christmas. So, um, I thought I would just bring us just a, a moment of levity, like what it feels like, the difference between what we expect Christmas to feel like, and then when we Encounter our actual humanity. Take a look it's at definitely,
1: this. Uh, scary. It's definitely a scary place to be in.
0: What's the matter? It's shattered. The glass shattered.
1: Be careful. No one's going to the hospital today, right? Are they brown or they bark?
2: They're toasty. Don't let the wine go away. I <laughs> ha, Yes, yeah. I had no idea it would be so hard trying to cut the avocado and then I' see this thing and get it. And to it. We keep that a toss them Check my eggs see how they're doing Dan? the
3: plastic is burning it's still raw on the inside oh dude, the egg and it broke I'm
2: gonna finally chop these I've never used a knife like. But- stay up yeah
1: take the knife card off take a th- there's the knife we grab but guys are don't make a mess we please don't make a mess you know this mums me up right and you got this a cool disaster thing going on right here man yeah i know turn your knife around turn your knife around turn your knife around <laughs> yeah for a sharper condor what? you want to cut something with the sharp end of the knife? i think this in here she's putting cheese oh, is
0: great oh, but Do you why is the toaster sideways
2: because it cooks the bread faster <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oh, there's what we want. Right. And then there's what we actually experience. And because of this concept, I just, I wanted to bring this up because this is what I feel like in my own life. Like I want these things. I want to be a person who is hospitable, is open to people. And we're talking about this idea of inviting people in. And then I think about things like this. I think it's really important for us to understand and really break apart this idea of what God intends for us to be when it means that we would be a hospitable people, that we would be an invitational people and break that and separate that from entertaining. Hospitality is not entertaining. Hospitality is so much deeper and fuller. It's, it's about our spirit. It's about the way we live into the world. And God has truly given us some beautiful stories of what that hospitality looks like. So we're going to talk about that this morning. Um, I'm going to set us up with a story from the Old Testament. I'm so excited to tell you a little story that you might not know. It's a little snippet from Second Samuel that often gets missed. But I want us to point out, I'm going to just give you a little bit of like theology 101 real quick as we get into this. And the reason why is because when we read the Old Testament, We want to keep in mind what its purpose is there for. These are real stories with real historical figures, with real things that happened. But because we know Jesus, we know where the story goes. We are also invited, when we read the Old Testament, to look for the way that the story might foreshadow who Jesus is for us today. So if you're a new Christian or if you've got little kids, you might know the book, The Jesus Storybook Bible. And I say if you're a new Christian because even though it's a kid's Bible, you should get it. It's just, it's one of my favorites. Oftentimes I read it before I preach, just in case I might read a story from it to you. What it says on the Jesus Storybook Bible, the little tagline under it, is every story whispers his name. And so as we read this story together from 2nd Samuel, I want you to keep in mind that not only are we going to read a story about a historical thing that happened, but that our good and gracious God, who is outside of time, knew that the way he prompted King David to respond in this story would be something that we would be talking about today, that we would still be inspired today by this ancient story because of what it teaches us about who Jesus is for us and what it teaches us about how we are meant to show up. In the world. So we're going to do that through Second Samuel chapter 9. So a couple of things, just like some good to know things that we're going to get into as we check out this story. So this is a few good to knows about this idea that the person we're going to read about today, who's King David, that this guy, King David, is a foreshadowing of who Jesus would be. So here's a couple of things to know about David and Jesus. Number one, they're both descendants from the tribe of Judah. So David is named in the genealogy of Jesus. So when we read the story of Jesus's birth, you'll see that there's a list of names like where did Jesus come from? And David is in that lineage, so they're related. Second thing, Jesus is often referred to as the son of David in the New Testament. David was the best expression of a king that Israel had. Israel was never meant to have a king. God was meant to be their king, but of the kings... David sort of is this best expression. So when Jesus is often called the son of David, as he teaches and moves through the world, royal lineage, David was a king of Israel. And this Messiah who's coming was expected to be from the royal line of David. And so the New Testament presents Jesus as the fulfillment of this this king, this line. I love this one, this idea of a good shepherd, that Jesus and David are connected as good shepherds. David was a shepherd before he was a king. David is also the one who wrote most of the Psalms. So you may know Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. David started as a shepherd and Jesus is often called the good shepherd. And you see stories where Jesus sort of refers to himself as that good shepherd. So we have that shepherd analogy. Victorious, David was known for his many victories. One you might know about is defeating Goliath early in his years. Jesus is also our ultimate victor over sin and death through his crucifixion and resurrection. And then there's this prophetic connection. David's writing these psalms. He writes all of these psalms, these poems. And what we see in these poems inspired by the Holy Spirit is that David wrote things that specifically happened to Jesus, that related to Jesus. So they're considered prophetic words about who Jesus, this Messiah would be and what would happen to Jesus in his earthly life. So there's that prophetic connection as well. And this is my favorite one, this last one, this Davidic covenant. The idea here, this happens just two chapters before the story we're going to read, is the idea here is that David has sort of established himself and he's created safety in the kingdom. And he prays to God and says, God, I have this beautiful palace and you have nothing. I want to build you a temple. And in the in the back and forth there that we're not going to get into today, God says to David, I will establish your line forever your kingdom will have no end. Well, if you've like watched Game of Thrones, you know every kingdom has an end, right? So the idea that David's kingdom, this David, this human who was going to live and die would have no end did not come true, was not fulfilled except in Jesus. So when we read stories of David, we are invited to look and see what, what is this foreshadow about who Jesus, our king, would be. So I want you guys to keep that in mind as we get into today's story. You ready? Did I give you enough of a lead up? Ready? Okay, here we go. Second Samuel 9. I'm going to read you guys in the message version just to make it easier to kind of hear the story. So one day, David, so this is David has established his kingdom. Things are safe. One day, David asked, is there anyone left of Saul's family? If so, I'd like to show him some kindness in honor of Jonathan. Okay, so we've got some main players here. So I'm going to, I'm going to pull like a little therapist here and make you a genogram. Are you ready? I'm going to show you the story. Okay. There's this prophet. Oop, nope. Not read. This prophet named Samuel, the prophet anointed Saul as King. Okay. So Saul is Israel's King and Saul fails at his duties as King. And so that anointing is removed. When that anointing is removed, David is now anointed King. David is not related to Saul. So this is like an outsider anointing. This is early on in David's years. He's anointed as King, but can you imagine Saul no go, does not like that this happens. And we see all through scripture, this long period of time where David's on the run, Saul is trying to kill him. There's a lot of that in second Samuel. And this is a lot of the times where David was writing these Psalms about being in danger, about God being his fortress. Eventually Saul is removed and David does become king, but there is no love here between Saul and David. Now, the story, the plot thickens. Saul has some children. One of those children is Jonathan. You heard him mentioned in the story. So his son is Jonathan. Well, Jonathan and David are tight. They have a strong relationship through their young years, so much so that at one point, Jonathan even warns David that Saul is after him and that Saul wants to kill him. And there's a point in the story where David and Jonathan like covenant their friendship that they are for one another, that they will protect one another. So in the midst of all of this animosity, we still have this relationship going on between the two of them. There's also a wife involved. I can't even get into that because we. Do, this isn't a miniseries. This is just a few minutes. So anyway, what you need to know is it's complicated, right? And it's kind of dirty. And the main thing that you need to know is right here. There is a lot of animosity. And by animosity, I mean trying to kill people, betrayal, deceit, murder. It's It's all of those things, right? This is what's going on. So now when we get into the story and we hear David saying, who can I show kindness to in Jonathan's family? We really are actually talking about his enemy family. Okay, got it? Yeah, here we go. Hey guys, we're here because the Bible has changed so many lives. So just take a second and think about if you didn't have access to a Bible or you weren't even allowed to have one. This is a reality that many around the world are facing, which is why I want to tell you about one of our partners, Crew. Crew has missionaries in almost every country and they are seeing people come to know Jesus. There's just one thing they're missing, a Bible in their own language, and that's where you come in. For only $24 a month, you can provide three people with Bibles each and every month. When you sign up to provide three Bibles with a monthly gift of $24, Crew will also provide meals to 12 hungry individuals through their humanitarian aid ministry. Plus, you'll receive a free copy of my new book, Not What I Signed Up For. Simply text STUDY to 71326 to help today. That's S-T-U-D-Y or visit give.crew.org study. Again, that's give.cru.org study. Message and data rates may apply and available to U.S. addresses only. So he asked the question, who can I show kindness to? It happened that a servant from Saul's household, remember Saul, King Saul, named Ziba was there. They called him into David's presence. The king asked him, are you Ziba? Yes, sir, he replied. The king asked, is there anyone left from the family of Saul to whom I can show some godly kindness? Ziba told the king, yes, there is Jonathan's son, lame in both feet. Where is he? He's living at the home of Makir, son of Amiel and Lodabar. King David didn't lose a minute. He sent and got him from the home of Makir, son of Amiel and Lodabar. When Mehibosheth, son of Jonathan, who was the son of Saul, came before David, he bowed deeply, abasing himself, honoring David. David spoke his name, Mehibosheth. Yes, sir. Don't be frightened, said David. I'd like to do something special for you in memory of your father, Jonathan. To begin with, I'm returning to you all the property of your grandfather, Saul. Furthermore, from now on, you'll take all your meals at my table. David then called in Zeba, Saul's right-hand man, and told him, everything that belonged to Saul and his family, I've handed over to your master's grandson. You and your sons and your servants will work his land and bring in the produce provisions for your master's grandson. Mehibosheth himself, your master's grandson, from now on will take all his meals at my table. Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And all that my master, the king has ordered his servant, answered Ziba, your servant will surely do. And Mehibosheth ate at David's table, just like one of the royal family. Mahibishheth also had a small son named Micah. All who were part of Zeba's household were now the servants of Mahibishheth. Mahibasheth lived in Jerusalem taking all his meals at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. Four times, actually, I said three in the last service, four times in this story it tells us that Mahibish was invited to eat at the king's table. Two times it tells us that Mahibish was disabled. Now, back in the story, a few chapters back, we actually learned that in fleeing from being killed, because again, Game of Thrones, it was normal when the king left his throne, it would be normal to like kill everybody in the family so that nobody can claim or try to, to make a coup on the throne. So in fleeing from that, this nanny was holding Mehibosheth. He was five years old and there was an accident. And that's why he was disabled. And we know from the story that obviously he was far away and sort of put away in some ways into this other household. And we hear in this story over and over again, now he will eat at my table. So I want to talk about what's going on here at the table and what happens here when David comes onto the scene and what he does. And this is sort of our main point here. We're going to look at this hospitality that David offers. And what I think is the point for us is that hospitality is a holistic welcome in spirit and in service. Hospitality is not just service and it's not just an attitude. It's not just a way of being. It's actually both. It's very, very intentional. And we see that happening here that when David operates in this passage that we read, he is operating very intentionally, right? So we know in the story, there's this previous commitment that he's made to his friend, Jonathan, and he has this moment where he's getting his affairs in order and he intentionally takes action to, to live out that promise that he made. He goes to actually seek out, how can I make sure that this promise is fulfilled? We see David operating from some values, right? And, and in some of my work and leadership and stuff, we talk about values all the time. And one of the things I think I, it gets shared a lot is like, hey, pick your values. Like everyone has personal values or maybe you have some family values. And I just want to make sure that we're not confused about what the family values are as people of faith. Like those were already set for us. I mean, we can have our other little things that we might love, but the reality is if we're following Jesus, we are called to some values. And one of those values that that has nothing to do with your personality or your temperament or your ability to set a great table is your hospitality. That actually this spirit of welcome in our spirit and in our service is what we're called to do. And we see David doing that. He sort of intentionally reaches out to say, what can I do to extend kindness? What could I do to see, is there anything I can do for this, this person that I loved who is not with him anymore? Like, is there anything I can do for this family? David is intentional. When it comes to our faith, we don't have to be confused about what God values, but we do have to be committed to practicing what God actually values. I love this picture here. Anyone got a guess? There's only one answer. Who do you think this is? You got it. Oh my gosh, we went with the Old Testament to the New and you went with me. You got it right. That's the answer. This is Jesus. This is a piece of art. i sort of depicting Jesus feeding the 5,000. And if you remember that story in the New Testament, Jesus comes off of this boat and he starts to teach and to heal people. And the day stretches longer and longer. And the disciples say to Jesus, send all these people away because they have to eat. And Jesus is intentional with his hospitality. And he says, no, we'll, we'll feed them. There's this, there's this action that comes out of the value of hospitality that actually does impact our everyday life. It does make us different and it's not entertaining. It's a way of being in the world that says I am here to be a welcoming spirit and to bring a welcoming service to the way that I live my life. A few weeks ago, I was traveling and I had a chance to stay one extra night sort of to recover from this big teaching opportunity that I was in. And so I was staying at a nice place and I left to go get a sandwich. And when I came back, they had, it was like a nice enough place where they do like a nighttime service, you know, like the thing you wish someone would do for you every night, like just turn down your bed and put a mint on the pillow. And I came in and they, someone, some beautiful angel had wrapped every one of my cords up with a little Velcro strip, like my computer cord and my phone cord. And I was like, Who is this person who sees me and knows me? Like they must have walked in and said, this must be a very chaotic woman. I must... I must find a piece of Velcro and organize her cords for her before I leave this room. And I, I think about that. I wish I knew who that person was. I wish I could tell them, I am a preacher in Richmond, Virginia. And I talked about you because you, you impacted my life. Like you, you showed me a spirit of hospitality that is intentional, that notices things far beyond what, what needs to be noticed. It's a small thing, but it's a meaningful thing. And I don't know if you've ever had someone who, who's done that, like a person who knows when you're hungry and they bring you a snack or, or a person who sees that you seem distressed when you normally aren't, or a person who, who holds your hands of like Venus and I were just talking between services and she held my hands. And like those intentional acts of saying, I am here with you. I am present with you. I see you. That is hospitality. That is not entertaining. And it's a beautiful part of what God calls us to David was intentional and Jesus is intentional secondly hospitality is gracious I know you guys have heard me say this over and over again if you've been at hill city because it's just like the best word in the old testament it keeps showing up and this word that shows up again in this same passage when David says who can I extend kindness to that Hebrew word is hesed that word means grace h-e-s-e-d hesed the reason why hesed is such an amazing word when it shows up is because the word signifies, I'm going to extend a family relationship to you where there is no family relationship. I'm going to act as if you are in my family, even when you are not in my family. And when I think about the word hesed and sort of where it appears in our culture, it would be the time if you have ever said, I felt right at home. Have you ever visited someone And and you're in their home and you're like, I felt right at home. Like I felt like part of the family. That's hesed. Something was extended in that person's presence and grace that actually felt to you like you were part of the family. And when David says this about Mehibosheth, he offers the same word. He says, I want to extend hesed to these members of the family. The second part of this gracious hospitality that we see in King David is that he scorns shame. To have a disability at that time, and let's be honest, still today, likely meant some social shame. It usually meant spending considerable financial resources on healers or priests who really couldn't help. It most likely meant exclusion from physical environments that wouldn't be designed to allow a person like Mohibosheth to have access. It certainly would have impacted his vocation. It often meant social shame for the beliefs that were held at the time that a disability was seen as a punishment for sin. And we can deduce, based on Mehibosheth's reaction to David, that he himself didn't think too highly of himself. He continues with the same kind of humility throughout 2 Samuel. He obviously didn't see himself as a threat in any way to David or his kingdom. David extends a grace in inviting him to his table that absolutely scorns the shame that Mahibosheth might have felt as a less than part of society. I hope for those of you who follow Jesus, you might be following some of the foreshadowing of who our Jesus is. Jesus who intentionally sought out the marginalized, the less than, those that society did not deem powerful he said were powerful. Those that were small, he put in the presence of others and said, see this little kid? Jesus constantly and intentionally extended grace to the margins. Hospitality is generous. This King David wrote Psalm 23, the one I talked about just a minute ago, the one that you might know that starts, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. Psalm 23 goes on, and David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote the words, You set a table before me in the presence of my enemies. My cup overflows. And out of that overflow of David's generosity, he literally invites his enemy family to the table with him. We live in a world of scarcity, scarcity in small and big ways. I grew up in a big family. I had three siblings. So there was four of us, which meant there was always like food scarcity in our house. Like for shrimp had to be counted out one by one. I asked my daughter the other day, I'm like, do we, do we have any like scarcity in our family? She goes cinnamon rolls, cinnamon rolls. There's always like a problem. I remember watching a family. We were babysitting a family and it was like the crescent rolls were a big deal. It was like, you know, it's my week to get one and a half crescent rolls, you know, you live, we live in this life where scarcity is a part of the story. And my mom, I grew up in a very generous home. My mom was extremely hospitable, always opening the doors. And 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 I learned at an early age that even in a world of scarcity, we can choose to believe there will always be enough. We can choose to say at the end of where I think I can go with the way that I live my life, the way I invite people in, God is going to meet me there with more. But sometimes even in that, my mom would whisper to the kids, family hold back. That's FHB. That's when you let other people eat first and you hope God's going to show up with the rest of the food because there's not enough for everyone. But guys, there was always enough for everyone. This was always enough for everyone. And I, I feel like in my mom's spirit, there was always like joy that we were going to run out of food. There wasn't anxiety. It was like a sign that we've opened our hearts and our home in a way that allows all these people to be here. That's Hesed, That's grace. That's generosity. That's what God means when he calls us to be people who are generous. That gratitude for who God is and what he's done in our life is actually what leads to real generosity. Not, not obligatory generosity, not I got to do this to be a good person, but actually like an overflow of generosity. This same David, he wrote these words in Psalm eight. And I think about this overflow of generosity coming from gratitude. Listen to the tone of, Of gratitude in this psalm. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You've made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet all flocks and herds and animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and all that swim the paths of the sea. See, David seemed to know that out of God's creation, out of God's abundance, out of God's goodness, his actions flowed from there. They didn't flow from a, from a, you do this for me and I'll do this for you. It was out of the goodness and the graciousness and the generosity of our God that his own grace came from that place. So Mohibosheth took all his meals at the king's table. To sit at the king's table was very significant, which is why it's repeated again and again. It's not just about like, hey, we're having our friend over for dinner every night. No, it actually signified something much more. So here's what you want to know about the table, the king's table. This is a picture of Queen, the queen's table. This is Queen Elizabeth's table. Can you imagine being invited to a table like this? And to be invited to the table was incredibly significant, particularly in the Middle East today still it still remains the same. And here's a little bit of what it means to be invited to the table. To be invited to the king's table meant a mark of honor and favor. It signified the person receiving the invitation was esteemed and held in high regard by the king. It was actually a gesture of respect. Imagine that. To be invited to the king's table was a sign of an elevated social status. It was a way for a king to acknowledge and include individuals of importance in his sphere. To be invited to the table created an alliance of loyalty and support. It was a way of saying, this person's with me. It might be about a political alliance, but it was also a way to build relationships with influential figures. Imagine being Mehibosheth invited to the table. To eat together was a symbol of trust. It was a communal act. To be invited to the table sort of brings a level of camaraderie and a way for a king to show that a person is not only respected but considered a close, personal friend. And finally, and maybe most importantly, to be invited to the table was about a covenant of friendship. Sharing a meal was a way to establish or confirm covenants And in the ancient Near East, if you eat a meal together, it is an act of unity. We don't share a meal together unless we're good. We're okay. And here King David is prompted by the spirit to be intentional in his actions to ask Mohibosheth to come to his table. And our Jesus also invites us to come to a table. When we think about what it means that we would follow a God who invite us to a table. It is an amazing and beautiful thing. And so we want to take a minute and we're actually going to take a pause here for a second to listen to a story here from our own community that I think really beautifully represents what a spirit of hospitality feels like and how it's received. So just know this story is about Hill City, but if you're here visiting or you're with a friend, this isn't just about Hill City. It just happens to take place here. This is actually a story about what a community of people who embody a spirit of hospitality actually look like. So take a look at this video. In 2014, we relocated to Richmond
2: and we came here from another community where we had a lot of church and we really lost that church and lost that community when we first moved to Richmond. So then seven years ago, our daughter was...
3: She was, yeah, she was just a couple months old.
2: Yeah, tiny. Tiny. Yeah, and so um, that's when Matt and
3: Emily had reached, put a post on Facebook about them going to Easter service, and so we're like, sure, like let's go to Easter service. That would be fun. I'll never
2: forget um, after the service, the Lamberts. They like turned around and they were so excited to meet us, just welcomed
3: us and mm-hmm. open arms and hugged yeah. on us. They ran up to us almost after the service and wanted to say hi to our our baby. And yeah,
2: but it was just it was that click well it just was
3: different right like like there was something about hill city when we went there the first time and and continuing where like it didn't feel churchy i guess if that's a word just people who enjoyed being around each other and it wasn't just an obligation to go to go to church on sunday
2: our journey grew too so we had our first child and then when we had Lydia like the church stepped up there too so when our second child was born she was born medically complex with lots of extra things going on she was still in the hospital when Cara and some of the children ministry team started reaching out and they're like well, what would you need to feel comfortable for Lydia to come to church and I'm like I haven't even figured out how to get her out of this building um and within a week I got an email that was like, we have so-and-so who's trained for the trait," um, And they got us the Ambu bag. It's hanging in the nursery. And I'm just like, okay, I don't know how we're going to get home, but I know that she's welcomed here.
3: We had a very hard period of our lives where Lydia was alive for three years and then passed away suddenly um, two years ago. And when that happened, we, you know, followed the ambulance to the hospital and then we're in the hospital and they pronounced her dead and it, you know, you never like, what are you going to do when that happens? Right. And, and
2: then like the next thing we know, but, like a nurse came thing. in and said, there was a gentleman that was with your church and a woman and the gentleman had tattoos all over him.
3: And Matt said he was the care minister and they didn't believe him. And we're like, <laughs> so they came back and we well, were just amazing from that moment, like on. And I mean, I can't, how many times did Matt sit with us at the house? after Lydia yeah, I mean, asked, I mean... Came by and
2: just asked all the right questions to help us figure out what we wanted to do and and help navigate different aspects of all of it. And so we always knew, like, we had that community. We had
3: those people behind us. That period of life is fuzzy for me. Like, it's it's trauma, right? It's 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 hard. And, and I just... The, the strong memories I have of our... The people the people that helped us get through that period in our lives and what they they were so selfless like that the, the people didn't really care they just wanted to help right and and hill city showed up and lydia was so cel- yeah
2: and it was laughter and like like finley talks about like lydia's celebration was full of fun and lydia's light shines on yeah. and i think that like finding hill city let us find that light people came up to us after the celebration of life and they were like what was about like where do you go to church and asking and we've had several friends that have come to hill city after coming after going to the celebration of life and like seeing that and like, they saw that
3: community there and so three or four people yeah that come to hill city because of of lydia passing we knew them in different capacities
2: and now we know them as church members and as fellow like Fellows Christians in Christ.
3: And I just remember John when he was preaching that day and he's like, yes, you'll be there for the chaise today and you'll be there tomorrow, but will you be there in six months and will you be there in a year and will you be there two years? And I think that that's true, that people are still there, right? I mean, that that even after two years, the Hill City as a community is still there for us as a family and us as... As individuals.
0: If we made another map of that life, you would see all of these little ways that a spirit of hospitality infused that experience around Lydia's life, around Lydia's death, and even those who are here because of it. And not everyone not every part of the story is this this deep part of the story. Some of the story has to start with a front door. Like That's what hospitality looks like. There still is always a front door that has to be open. So I want to give you guys kind of three like takeaways in this 13 and a half days up until Christmas that you might um, just place on yourself as like, yeah, I want to move into like a slightly uncomfortable place with the way that I live out a spirit of hospitality. So let's follow right in the line of kind of David's story. The first one is to be intentional, but start small. You don't have to set the king's table to set a table. You can do a lot of little things in life. We have some new friends, Ann and Brad, and a a couple months ago, we just decided to start doing Monday night dinner. And and there's no, the only rule is you show up and you don't bring anything and you don't clean up and it's okay if it's takeout and it's okay if you stay for 20 minutes. And we just take turns back and forth. Very, very low key. But those are the kind of small things that build relationships, right? That same family, they're so hospitable, they're so great. The day after Thanksgiving, they had their first annual big money bingo night. And we all just like, we really like, literally just like regular people, not even senior citizens. We all just played bingo. Like it was so fun. And it was crazy because Ann and Brad have that spirit of hospitality. So, so in the room, were all of these different relationships, different ages, people who didn't know each other because they're always about inviting one more person. They're so inspiring to me because it's so low key. It is intentional, but it's small. And intentional and small is open to all of us. Because honestly, like if you ask your coworker to join you for Christmas Eve service, like what's the worst thing that's going to happen? They're going to think you're a Christian. I hope they knew before. And maybe they're going to say yes. Maybe they'll say no. But that's like pretty much the worst thing that's going to happen. So it's a little uncomfortable. Yeah. Do you feel a little socially awkward with people? Sure, we all do. But it's okay to feel a little uncomfortable because hospitality is a way of being in our spirit and it's acts of service. So be intentional, but start small. Family dinners, bingo nights, build some rituals, maybe even this season. Secondly, be gracious, but don't be weird about it. What do I mean by this? Well, a true heart of grace actually comes out of our deepest acceptance that we ourselves are the ones who don't deserve a seat at the table but that Jesus himself has extended that seat to us, that we ourselves are the ones who are vulnerable and weak and needy. And we ourselves are the one who experienced shame. And Jesus is the one who removed that. And he invited us to the table. So we certainly want to create space for others at that same table. A true heart of grace doesn't come out of obligation. It comes out of an overflow, right? It's a generous overflow. Finally, be generous as an overflow, not as that obligation. Giving is about offering yourself. It's your smile. It's your presence. It's your attention. It's those small acts that can lead to great things. It's that front door that we open. I was with another family from Hill City this week, Emmett, and I was asking Emmett how he met his wife, Courtney, and he said he met her at a deer meat cooking competition. Should I say it again? A deer meat cooking competition where Emmett was there, (laughs) Emmett was invited, and Courtney was invited to be part of the family. And that part of the family actually created a family. Like that's a part. And yes, there's, there's someone for everyone is that's what I feel like at the end of the story. Like, I love it. I'm like, was it good? I don't know. Um, but we love out of that place. We love out of this gracious overflow. It's that ability to believe, you know what? The world says that this is a world of scarcity, but God says he is a God of generosity which means that if I'm just going to extend myself just a little bit, I'm going to be a little bit uncomfortable. I'm going to go a little beyond what I think I can handle emotionally or with my time or with my financial resources, that God's going to do something with that because that's who God is. And that's what God's calling us to do. We don't have to be confused about what values we're supposed to have as followers of Jesus. He has made it so clear that he's given us the spirit of hospitality to live into our spirit Of hospitality looks like the way we listen to people it looks like the way we look people in the eye spirit of hospitality is a state of being it's not I'll say for one more time it's not entertaining it's a state of being and it's an invitation that all of us are invited into it's a place of such richness and depth and connection in life but it starts with one invite with one bingo night with one family dinner, with one pushing yourself a little bit out of your comfort zone that often creates the beginning of something beautiful. King David foreshadowed who Jesus would be. We're gonna take communion in just a moment. If you don't have a little communion cup, you can just raise your hand and we'll come bring you a cup. We'll take a minute, but I just, I wanna connect with you guys about what Jesus did at the table because we just heard a story about a king who made a seat at the table for Mehibosheth. But we serve a king named Jesus. King David wanted to fulfill his promises to Saul's family, but Jesus left his place in heaven to fulfill God's promises to us, to love and to rescue us. King David extended grace to Mehibosheth. Jesus extends grace to all who call on his name. King David made a place at his table. He extended friendship. He scorned shame. He made the statement, this guy is with me. And Jesus sets a table for all of us. Jesus came as a baby in the flesh. He walked around this world. He knows what it's like to feel hungry, to feel thirsty. He didn't sit with the best in the world and the best that the world has to offer. Instead, he made place at his table for the overlooked, the weary, the socially unacceptable. He went far beyond what King David could ever do because he gives us a seat at the honor of honor at his table. And in doing so, he takes away our shame. He actually takes our seat for us. He takes that seat of shame and he takes it away and he gives us his seat instead. That's what he did with his disciples at the table. When Jesus came to the table where communion began he actually had his friends around him. It was a little bit of a confusing time. Jesus was about to go to the cross, but they were sitting at a meal. They, they may not have even known that they were sitting at the king's table. They were sitting with King Jesus at the table. And in that place, if you want to turn your little cup over, you can. there's going to be a little piece of bread under there, gluten-free, so that we're all invited. You've got your little piece at the table. And Jesus was with his friends and he took the bread that was on the table and he broke it in front of them. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Do so in remembrance of me. why did he say that? Because he was actually going to be broken. His body was going to be broken for his people. He was going to make a new promise in which he would remove the seat of shame and replace it with a seat of honor. And he says, I'm the only one who can do that. I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you come to the Father, you come through me. Come through me to the table. Go ahead and take and eat. And then Jesus took the cup on the table and he held the cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant made in my blood for you. Do this in remembrance of me. What Jesus was saying is there's a new way to live and love. And the only thing that you can do at this table is come to it. I'm going to do all the rest. And when we come to that table, we scorn that shame and we say, yes, Jesus, we want your life for our life. Take and drink. When we drink of the cup, we celebrate these truths. How to Study the Bible with Nicole Eunice is a production of Life Audio and Salem Media. If you like what you heard today, please take a second to rate and review the podcast in your favorite podcast app so that more listeners like you can find the show. For more faith-filled, inspirational podcasts, visit us at lifeaudio.com.